guess what? You have just found yourself on another episode of Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai. I am your host. And this season, we are exploring great conversations around developer tools, applications, how they were made, and really how it's relevant for the next generation of developers. The show is made possible by OutSystems, which is a development tool to build web and mobile applications on the enterprise level. I'm really excited today because this is a conversation with Adobe. And I'll be honest, for some time, I kind of forgot about Adobe because from my perspective for a while, Adobe was the design tool. It was the design tool that really got me started into computers. And then I kind of left it because I didn't really continue as a designer. And I really started to revisit it again because the way they provide value and service builds is really applicable for what kind of work I also do now as a developer. So I'm really excited to go through and look at this intersectionality between like design tool, developer tool. I don't know, let's get started. I'm really excited to welcome Carrie Schatz, who is a product manager at Adobe. Yeah, right? I'm so, right. so excited to be here. Yeah, that doing product management for extensibility. So really cool features that we're working on for our products. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining. I'm really excited because I've not had a product manager on the show before. And so I'm very curious to hear about your experience going through your developer journey, ending as a product manager, or at least at this moment in time as a product yes. manager, right? <laughs> and so what was your experience like? I think you might have had a traditional path as a developer going through schooling, but please do share more about, about that journey and what kind of where you've gone and where you are now. Yeah, I would argue that it is mostly a traditional path. I was very lucky and privileged to grow up around technology and around educators who could recognize the potential there. And so I had all the benefits in terms of, oh, in school, even in grade school, of this, this person is familiar or could excel at technology. And so got into these competitions where we would share what we worked on, all these different things, get into dual credit courses so that because we were in a rural area where I grew up and so like the high schools there didn't have a whole lot of technology options but there were community colleges and the like around so we're able to get exposed to a lot of options there and so I was really really quite lucky but on the flip side I grew up with technology from you know as early as I can really remember and my parents were in college learning about the computers of the era we had a Commodore 64 in the house and, and those kinds of things. And so a lot of that was just like natural progression, self-teaching, you know, figuring out what this thing is, why it's exciting. And yeah, so that kind of launched me off into the technology sector and never really looked back. I went to college. I have a computer science degree in this. Uh, we covered things like uh, C and Pascal and Java and, you know, all of these programming languages that some of them I use far less now than I have, <laughs> than I did then, obviously. But yeah, so a very standard progression went and worked at Microsoft for a little bit as a SDET quality engineer, and then kind of took a 
maybe a, a right turn, a hard right, and went into database administration. And I always like to talk to people in terms of nothing makes you paranoid faster than being a DBA. Oh um, my gosh, that's amazing. That's, oh my, that's so good. <laughs> I mean, you're responsible for, especially in this case, it was for a community college. And you're responsible for the system that runs the college and administration and finances and registration and, you know, student activity. I cannot relate anymore. (laughs) Just a side tangent. I used to do DBA related work at a bank, at a national bank. And I'm just, I'm just like, did I I lose a penny? Is it gone? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And we actually did have to address that because there was, we were moving to a new system and the new system didn't track pennies. And the financial director there went, what? (laughs) How are you not tracking pennies? So yeah, I spent seven years there doing DBA-related stuff, but also web work and front-end work attaching to that. And so that led into a lot of the other stuff that I started to work on where it's like DBA is great, but the on-call 24-7 is not a great idea. And long term, I mean, I'm dying. Yeah, I I remember waking up one day in Christmas Eve and for some reason we had run out of disk space or something and and the the database was stopped. And I was like, oh, shoot, I have to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning, log in remotely figure this out. And so, yeah, not great on the stress level. Well, so I was going to say, was that because, and I don't do a lot of, I mean, I don't do any DBA now, but is it at the time more because it was more localized rather than cloud-based? Yes. Is it more? Okay. Okay. It was very much an on-premise system and it was still very new to all of us. It was a brand new system and we're trying to figure out the ropes and how it does all this management. And then I wake up with a ping at midnight or something like that. And it's like, oh yeah, I can't connect to the database anymore. It's like, oh shoot. Yeah. You're like the firefighter. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so you figure that out, you fix it, you make sure it doesn't happen again. And then you realize, you know what, I don't want to spend the rest of my life on call. So I start transitioning out of that into mobile application development and in particular got into the PhoneGap community, if that sounds at all familiar. Oh, definitely. I went through a lot of hackathons (laughs) through my early years. So I remember discovering PhoneGap and was like, hold up. Yes. I can be a mobile dev now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was so amazing. And the people there were so, so fantastic. And the community was excellent and actually got to write a few books about it. And that finally led into my first position at Adobe, which was not as a product manager. It was as a technical writer. And we were working on some stuff that we were going to be bringing out shortly, kind of like PhoneGap, but tangential. And so my connections with PhoneGap and the people there, they suggested internally, oh, Carrie would be great for this position. You should reach out and interview her. And they interviewed me and I'm going through all the processes and going, oh, that's never going to happen. Because at the time I was a, a consultant freelance and doing that for like seven years at that point and got the job. And then four months in, it's like this opportunity comes in, oh, we're working on this really big initiative in terms of extensibility in our products. Would you like the opportunity to step in as a product manager here? Or would you like to go the engineering route? Because I've done engineering all my life. And I stopped for a second because I'm not classically educated in product management at all. But I looked at the opportunity. It's like, the engineering is the easy path forward for me just because it comes second nature. I've done it for so long. I know I could excel there. But product management was a brand new opportunity for me. 
and it was going to be a challenge. And it's like, you know what? I think I want the challenge. And so that's how I stepped into becoming a product manager there. And it has been, I mean, there's still technical aspects to it. So I don't go a day probably without writing some code, but it has been a really educational and exciting experience getting to put your fingerprints on something that drives our products. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think when you look at Adobe, it is so obvious that it's such a product heavy company, right? Like that is the value proposition, the vision, the Adobe is is product, right? And when when I look at Adobe, especially along the journey of development, what got me really excited about having this conversation with you today is for me, and this is just me on a very personal level, when I think of Adobe, I think of it as a design tool. I didn't think of it as a tool for developers. But when I look back at my own experience and even even today with Adobe XD and, you know, what I think of it now is like, oh, this is definitely a tool also for developers. And and depending on what generation of developers, right, I, I'm, I might be the last generation. I might be the last generation of like Illustrator and Dreamweaver was like the gateway drug to development, right? And I had completely forgotten about that as well. Yeah. I mean, I remember even as it throughout my journey where for a time I was building websites for companies and the first place I reached was Photoshop. And because you had these graphics rich, heavy designs and you needed to splice them out and put them into these little images that you had to deploy on your website. And so Photoshop just came naturally to do that. And there is a huge amount of developers that have coalesced around Photoshop and Illustrator, our flagship tools. And it's really amazing to hear their experiences about how this product opened up their developer journey. Because a lot of them may not have even started out as developers. They started out as designers who had a problem to solve. And it turns into oh, well, with a little bit of a Google search or what have you, I I find out that I can use a little bit of code here, copy and paste it, make it do what I want it to do, tweak it. And suddenly you've turned into this developer who can automate your workflows so much faster than you could have ever done before. That's what makes my day. Every time I hear a story about someone who's gotten into development because of this gateway of I was trying to solve a workflow plot problem or design some graphics and I needed some code to do it, and then this opens up a brand new world. It's it's such a fantastic story. Yeah, that's a really good point. And from your perspective, do you happen to know or remember kind of the origin story behind Adobe? Why it was made, how it was made, and even the fact that it's a product of the 80s, right? Right, yeah. I mean, Adobe has been around for so long and it's really a conglomeration of a lot of products. So you have Photoshop, you have InDesign, you have all of these different kind of flagship products and they kind of just aggregated over the course of the years. So like if I think about Photoshop, it was one of the very earliest examples of working with photography in on computers in the 80s, these computers who had next to no memory at all, it's like, it's amazing what you were able to get them to do. And compared to like what was selling to enterprises at the time where you might be talking four or five times, 10 times the cost. And here's this upstart 
program out here that that costs less but can do everything that these big companies are doing. It's the same story many times over of innovating how to meet the end user in their creative needs where they're at with the technology that they have for less cost is a story that's told many times over. The same thing with InDesign, print houses. You'd have these big complex workflows that suddenly InDesign comes in with some of our other products, Illustrator and the like, and you can build a workflow that can save you so much money and equipment and all that stuff. So it's really a matter of, and I think this is critical for Adobe success, is how do we deliver solutions and products and platforms that enable a user to to do things that we didn't even think of and build these elaborate workflows that result in this immense library of creativity. And so I think that's really the important thing to take away from Adobe's mindset. But it's also, we can't forget where it originated. There's a lot of stuff that Photoshop code from the 80s, and that's still shipping, right? There's parts of Photoshop that are still shipping from the 80s and 90s, and including some of our extensibility solutions. So there's a long legacy, and sometimes that gets a little bit fun to deal with in our modern environment, where we're thinking about a modern JavaScript or modern programming languages, modern concepts around security and privacy. And here you have hand-tuned assembly code that is sitting in some products. And then like Apple Silicon comes along and it's like, oh, now you need to work on a different architecture. Those oh, are, yeah. you know, there's all That's... sorts of challenges. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, side tangent on the Apple Silicon. I was thinking about that. I was like, wait, but there's so many like localized applications that I like to use. And that does become... If not an issue, at least concerned, I'm not sure if I want to use Rosetta, but I think, as you mentioned, Apple, and you talked about Adobe's legacy and success. I also want to remind folks who are listening, Steve Jobs was one of the earlier, the wand that graced the the blessing, right? So (laughs) for context, I don't know if it was, it might've been at the 90s at that point, or maybe 80s. It, It was, I think, actually the first year when Adobe was really launched, Steve Jobs had offered to acquire Adobe, right? And so I think the point that I'm trying to make is that he had a very early on, like, you know, the founding fathers of design and tech um, saw the potential in Adobe. And then I think that also, I don't know if you know much about this, and please educate me if you do. Adobe was also one of, or at least either the founder or it was created Adobe, which was like PostScript, which is one of the page, yeah, the page description languages. So I think that the development nature has always been there and the value add has always been there. And it has definitely come quite a long way where there's also that intersectionality between like design and development as well. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, and this is something before I joined Adobe that I had never really thought of before, just the idea of fonts and the whole PostScript, that definition language you get into this realization that fonts are code and you look at this glyph on a screen and you look at it and go, that's design, that's pure graphical design, but not really because you have to describe how it hints to a screen, how all these curves form into something that is still readable on say low resolution devices or alternative surfaces. And you start realizing the complexities of all of that and the math that's involved and the programming that's involved. And so Adobe has really been exceptionally blessed in a way that it started with a very design-heavy perspective because you could just go the route of bitmap fonts, but we all remember, you know, if we grew up with, like, the limited set of fonts that were available on a Macintosh in the early days, and you could only pick from 8-point or 12-point or whatever, but no in-between. 
And you start realizing how much that unlocks things. And so even from those early days of fonts, our code and the like, but they're also graphical and creative. I think it's where that intersection is. And that's why I'm so excited to be in the position that I am today is there is this intersection of code and developers and developer tools and the output, this creative graphical output that is, you know, so impressive. I mean, without a doubt, even fonts are code, colors are code. Right. Yeah. Don't you worry. So many times <laughs> I'll give pass on, I'll pass on a, a front end design because I'm, I'm not a good front end developer and I'll, I'll hand them, I'll hand another developer. And I, there's a specific time where I was like, all right, this is, this is the mobile application you're creating. This is the color, et cetera. He sends it back. And I was just like, I gave you the exact hex code for how did you mess up on the color? Like it was at that point, it was just a copy and paste, but it was like an off green. But then you get into color spaces and all that fun stuff. And it's like, oh, wait a second. Well, maybe what I saw on my monitor was not what they were seeing on their monitor. You get into all these complexities. And so it makes it really challenging to build a platform for people to extend on when you're not aware of all the use cases that are out there. Yeah. Actually, I'd love to dive deeper into that. What are some dev challenges that you've experienced, and at least in this ecosystem, and what is common? Let's start with that. Yeah. I think that one of the biggest things is just the realization that our products themselves are extensible in the first place. And that can open up a huge realm of possibilities. And extensibility here can mean all sorts of things. It doesn't have to mean JavaScript code. It doesn't have to mean the platform that we're building that I'm part of, which is UXP. It could mean brushes or actions or fonts. All of these different things can be can come together to make extensibility something very powerful in your creative workflows. But I think the biggest perhaps issue or difficulty there is realizing the scope. And I've been through this in these past three years where we've been developing this UXP platform, which is a JavaScript platform that enables you to build plugins in our applications with user interface and all of these things and integrate with your host products, with your products alongside of our host applications, is just the scope of what's out there. And the fact that what might be there's workflows, you know, where you're just connecting data streams from one endpoint to the other. There's things that are actually generating graphics. There's all of these things that are out there and you realize how much you don't know where what you're doing today may open up fantastic solutions down the road. And so I think that's really the biggest thing to be aware of when you're building like a developer platform is try not to anticipate every potential outcome and restrict it is make the ecosystem such that it can evolve and turn into something more than the sum of its parts. Because there's a fine line there too, right? You have all this powerful stuff in, in your technology portfolio, say, but it can be used for good, it can be used for bad, and we have all these modern expectations of security and privacy and user consent in terms of what my code can do on your computer. So there is this fine line that we do have to walk is how far can we allow untrusted code, for example, to go running on your document? And where's the risk of data loss and all these kinds of things. So it makes it a really challenging path to walk, not to be too restrictive so that the ecosystem can't grow, but not to be so enabling that 
it comes out of hand and users can't trust the ecosystem because if they can't trust the ecosystem, then a lot of what we're building isn't terribly useful. So we're trying to walk that line very carefully. Yeah, I think that's actually a very valid point. And when it comes to, you describe it as walking the line, but I am curious, coming from your perspective, having been a developer most of your career and now really straddling that product side, and maybe it's going through a transformation, but is Adobe a design tool? Is it a developer tool? For me, my first exposure to Adobe is very truly a pure design tool, but I was also at a different phase in my life. And I, th- I mean, we could talk about this like forever. Like I, I think, <laughs> I think the definition of dev tools might be also changing as, as the way we learn how to develop. But anyways, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. I think it's both. And I think because we have development and code has been in our DNA from moment one, we look when we're building Photoshop, for example, the whole action system that goes on inside of Photoshop, you can think of that as perhaps a low code solution to extensibility, but it's also very easy to grasp a hold of and use in your workflow. So it's very approachable. You don't have to know JavaScript to start venturing into the world of extensing, extending your products. And so I think it is both design and developer is the stuff that I'm generating out of Photoshop. If I'm using actions to help further that process, I am a developer of of a perhaps a bespoke tool that is generating that process, but I'm a developer nonetheless. And I think that's One of the amazing things about extensibility is it it enables your users to not just necessarily think of themselves as designers or copy editors or authors or, or the like. They can start thinking of themselves as I am the person molding my tools into what makes me successful and makes our output successful. Yeah. I also wonder if developers are becoming more of a composer, orchestrator type role. And it also kind of reminds me of maybe it's like a millennial Gen Z thing of you have multiple identities. I'm a student and an entrepreneur and also a SoundCloud rapper and X, you know, there's just, and it kind of reminds me of like the Renaissance men back in the day where it's like, I'm a orator and a lecturer and read things and an inventor, like inventor was a thing, you know, like you don't really hear inventor. Anyways, that's totally a side tangent. But, and I think as you talk about the extensibility and the reach of reach towards developers, then, then my question leads to your background is, you know, perhaps more heavily .NET. And then when I think of Adobe, even from the design perspective, it, it naturally goes towards designers and even front-end devs, and even at that point, maybe even like JS, that kind of ecosystem. And as we look at developers, there's so many, it's not just pan developers, there's very specific subsets. I guess the question I'm trying to ask is then how does Adobe as a tool then even target or reach different developer communities since they also have different stacks that they're familiar with? Well, I think it's really, and that's a really great question and and perspective to have is that there are definitely a lot of developers who are of a similar mind. So we have Adobe XD, which a lot of people are using to build modern websites. And there's a lot there that is tuned towards that, although it's not the sole reason, because we also have things about companies use it for artificial reality development and all of these other kinds of things, or augmented reality, I should say. And you have, there is a 
wide swath of developers and designers who are using the tool. But the other thing I think is interesting is, although like the product that I am working on specifically is, is very much focused towards a web developer or a JavaScript developer who wants to, who realizes they can extend our products, is that that's not the only solutions we offer. There's all sorts of ways to automate our products and extend them from C++ developers who, who want to really dig in deep and turn Photoshop or, or Illustrator and design into something that is very customized for their use case or for their company to the person who is maybe using it more as a step in their process. And it's like, they're building scripts at an operating system level that says, I have this input, Photoshop, go do this, Illustrator, go do this, and give me the result. And so there's all these different opportunities in terms of if you don't know JavaScript, you can still do extensibility in our products and come up with interesting ways of linking them together. And I think that's what makes everything so flexible but also so powerful is because if I'm coming to our products and our portfolio as a C++ developer or someone who is database-minded or someone who is workflow and automation-minded, their perspectives bring new ideas into the platform and the ecosystem. And having all of those together, that diversity really makes it a powerful system rather than just one little bit of extensibility and here's what you can do with that. That's great. But I think it's everything together that makes it really powerful. And that's partly why we're making a bigger push these days about our extensibility solution is that there's a lot of people out there who like they may be turned off by JavaScript or web or what have you, but there's a million different ways that you can extend our products and how that can fit into your workflows. And I think that's what makes it so versatile and so successful and will continue to be successful. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the versatility and the diversity of Adobe's integration capabilities. And also that helps me reflect on the diversity of product lines, right? So again, kind of to step back even a little again is looking at one of your OG products, which is Illustrator, right? And One of the things that it reminds me of is I'm curious to learn what from, I guess, from an IDE perspective, what was the original coding language that it was built on? Is it still the same today? Was it a low level language? And then also, how do you, as a technical company, how does your team deal with like technical debt as well? Yeah. So I wasn't around when Illustrator uh, started getting created (laughs) at Adobe, so I can't give you the full on details, but I know there are definitely aspects of it that are very low level just because, especially from the era in which it was written, it had to be. That was the only way you were going to get any reasonable performance. And so that does, in a way, turn into a bit of a tech debt because as, you know, machines improve, you still have the scale where you have to determine new features being requested by our customers, new development tools that we can enable versus what we have that works. And if it's not broken, don't fix it kind of thing, there is a cost to re-implementing something that already works, even if it's a very low-level language. And I know there's assembly and C and very low-level stuff sitting in these products. And especially when you come across a platform change like Apple Silicon or who knows what's coming in the future. There's all this this stuff with all sorts of mobile devices, you know, glasses where you have AR, you know, there's all sorts of platforms that are coming. And it is a fine line in terms of how do you determine when it becomes time to 
rewrite or rework that code because inevitably you're, you're going to introduce bugs. And so I think that's where for us especially is having a robust automation system where we can run tests and validate our quality um, is going to be critical as the future evolves is that's the only way we can be sure that when we do make the decision to address that tech debt and bring it forward into the future that we're not also losing the past because there are also a, a whole host of our users out there that depend on what we have there today. And their businesses and their livelihoods may be dependent upon all of this working and not all of them are developers. And so we have to be very careful about how we advance, what features we can bring forward versus not breaking the past. And it is a very, very fine line to walk. We have these discussions all the time in terms of tech debt, even within the UXP feature that I'm working on. It hasn't been around for very long, but it's already accrued some tech debt because that's just the way things are. And so it's like, well, okay, what levers can we push to generate the most impact is, are a lot of people relying on this feature? Does it make sense to change it? Does it make sense when that might have a huge impact alone because maybe now we're breaking plugins and breaking workflows and that would not be a great thing. Do we build something new that we can just phase the other one out? So there's all those kinds of questions that we have and it's, it's just about on a daily basis as to how we figure out how we support legacy and classic workflows versus what this new world is demanding of us in terms of things that we would never have been able to think of 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I think those are very valuable principles to keep in mind. And this also leads me to, then what are some design principles that you would also recommend to developers to keep in mind? Because I would imagine also Adobe is also very design focused, right? And I think that I'd love to hear more of your perspective on this because it's design principles. It's definitely not something we've talked about on the series before, but I think it's, there's a few tips that as devs, we should keep in mind as well. Yeah. And I think it's in a way it kind of, I tie it to something like localization, which is something that we as devs have always had to work with, but all too often we save that for the last step or the last few steps in our product. And then you recognize that, oh, something breaks badly and it's going to take a lot of work to fix or we made the wrong assumptions. So I think the biggest, most important thing is don't wait on design. Design needs to happen first in a lot of ways. There's the common form follows function and, and all of these different things that are going on. And it really does make a difference in terms of how you approach building out a product. The user's mental model of your product, you almost have to become telepathic in a way. Understand how the user is trying to accomplish their goal, how they're going to use what you're presenting in front of them. If they can't connect to your mental model, to their mental model, they're going to be frustrated when they use your product. So not only thinking about design first, but actually talking to your users. Get inside their heads because this is the only way you're going to actually solve the problems that they have. A lot of times, and this happens internally and externally, we'll have a developer that comes to us, they're saying, or a user, and they're saying, we have this particular problem. Could you solve, you know, could you help us devise a solution? Sure, we could help you with the immediate problem, but that may not be the root cause of all your issues. So really dig in and find out what it is that the user is thinking about as they're working through your product 
because ultimately that's how they're going to feel most comfortable. If you solve the wrong problem or if you solve a problem but you forget the user mental model and they have to completely reorient themselves about how they think about the problem, the user is going to be frustrated, find your software difficult to use, and that's not what any of us want to deal with throughout the course of the day. I'm sure there are programs that we all use that it's like, why doesn't this do what I want it to do? And that's where it's indicative of a, a mental model break is I have a certain picture of how the software works. The developer had a different picture. And now it's navigating this twisty maze of passages all alike, trying to figure out how do I make that connection? And we can overcome that with all sorts of training and material and all, and all that stuff, but better to have that mental model correct in the first place, because then you know you're solving the right problems, you're solving them the right way, you're doing the right, and ultimately you are enabling that user to get to the value outcome faster, sooner, with less mental taxation, if you want to say. So I think that's a huge thing to think about is be telepathic, get in your user's mindset. And then I think it's also important to walk a mile in your user's shoes is as you're working through these designs, drink your own champagne, so to speak. This is something that we do all the time inside of Adobe as we're building. We use our own tools, number one. We have Slack channels devoted to here's where we're finding faults with our very own tools because we're customer zero in a way. Same thing with our development platforms is we utilize these to build our very own features. And so we're customer zero there. We we walk a mile in our user's shoes. We find out where the issues may lie sometimes before we even get them out the door, hopefully before we get them out the door because at that point, it's a little bit hard to pull back and fix things. So I think that's absolutely critical is use your stuff, be telepathic, and then also get it out there. Do beta testing and pre-releases and get users utilizing your software because a lot of times we can do all the user testing in the world that we want to do and we may still have a limited subset. But once it gets out into the real world and we start doing beta programs and pre-releases, we can still find out early enough that, oh, maybe we were a little bit uh, skewed in what we were thinking. And that still gives us time to course correct. And in terms of design, if you wait until design is the very last thing, that will be way harder to overcome than if you've already been thinking about this product from the user experience perspective already. And so that gives you way more time to build something that is functional, fun to use, actually works for the user, but also gives you time to iron out the issues that always happen when it comes to software development and launching a product. I am just sitting here and nodding like I feel like I need a neck brace because <laughs> everything that you're spewing out, I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I cannot stress enough that I so understand where you're coming from when you're recommending essentially you shouldn't leave design considerations till the very end because if you slap on a design, right, it, the functionality might not even be sensible. And I, you alluded to this earlier, which is, and I think Adobe has been a part of this path through multiple generations at this point, which is the way we design, the way we consume technology is changing. So I used to be a Unity designer, right? So the point that I'm trying to make is that the mediums and platforms will at some point also exist beyond just web and mobile. It will also be in VR or the AR glasses that Apple's releasing. 
or even, you know, I, I worked in Web3, right? So a lot of like decentralized, you know, applications for at least in the blockchain ecosystem. The difficulty is, is that it's so, it is such a technical tool and sometimes design is forgotten about it and then you can't really use it because it's too, it's not that it's too technical, but the design functionality isn't there and the user adoption isn't there. And therefore the adoption of upcoming technology is just creates so much more friction to adopt it. And you can, you can imagine that that's a huge frustrating point. It's like, how do you make it a lot more simple to consume this upcoming technology without a doubt? Yeah. And that's something that we're continually having to think about is even though like I'm working on a JavaScript platform that is akin to React Native. And so you have web considerations and implications and all of these things going on there. That's not all that there is, is how do we make it easier for for designers and users to integrate all these things together? And so what are the things that we can think about in terms of innovation? Are there low-code options? Are there no-code options? Are there innovative ways that we can use AI and, and machine learning and all these different ways to tie things together, make it really approachable for our users to get what they want, number one. I mean, we want to let them be able to use our products to generate the graphical output that they want, but also not just live here in the current time frame. but how do we think about that in what's coming in five years, 10 years and the like? And I think that's what makes it so exciting is like no day is boring at Adobe because we're always thinking about what's next and how can we empower our users and our developers, especially, you know, because we can't build everything. There's always going to be this case where a developer can build a bespoke solution for a user that we can't. How do we enable them to use the magic of the tools and how they work together? And I think across, especially not just mobile and desktop, but like you mentioned, you know, what does a world look like where you are writing code for an AR system and you're getting into, is the developer able to do these things in 3D space? And how do you, how do you interact with all of this? And I think that's, there's a lot of opportunity there and I'm super excited to see where things will be going. Yeah. And I think where, what you've really mentioned is you at Adobe also think about what's coming. And so usually what I like to do kind of wrap up the show is actually bring you a step back. What was your first nostalgic memory or interaction with computer or technology? What was something that really spoke to you that you like, this is an aha moment or this is something I remember? Yeah. So I think it comes down to, and this is why I love working at Adobe so much, is there is this, I remember way back when, when I was learning how to code, there's always this first idea of putting something on the screen. And back in the day when I was learning how to code, like say my Commodore 64, you had a piece of graph paper and you put dots on there and you figured out the numbers and because it was all binary and all this stuff. And you put them inside of a program and it would either work and you're going, yes, I did it. Or more likely it's I typed something wrong or the math was wrong. And now you're realizing, okay, where's the problem? How do I fix it? And then just kind of going from there to where we are today of, I can write programs that write that code for me and generate all this stuff. It doesn't have to be something that I do pixel by pixel, but also just the magic that is how we do image processing or audio processing or video processing and the very nascent forms it took in the 
cities where you're having to deal with pixel by pixel stuff to what we can do today and thinking artificial intelligence to remove backgrounds and creating generative art where it's I write a program, but I come out with this incredibly fancy piece of digital artwork that I could never have done by hand. Just that power and the huge amount of transformation that has happened from when I started in the 80s to now is just mind-boggling. So every time I look at, and in fact, I have it sitting here on my desk, actually, every time I look at my Commodore 64, I think back to those days where in some cases it was simpler. You could understand the whole machine and have it live inside your head almost because it was so basic. What a treasure. (laughs) Right? What a treasure. And now you have these insane MacBook Pros or desktop environments And just that difference. It reminds me every day to be amazed at what we're capable of, but also don't forget where we came from because that helps illustrate a lot of our our journey and recognizing that, okay, maybe I have a nice fast machine. Not everyone does. So also keeping in mind that we need to accommodate for a lot of potential experiences where this is why it's still important to write performant code. Not everyone has the fastest machine. And so having these two machines on my desk has been really, really nice and reminds me about all of those things. My jaw is sore because I've just been silently screaming behind the screen because I think, one, it's a beautiful illustration of where we came from and where we're going. And there was also a smidge of a realization as to why there were, depending on the CS class in college, you had professors that would make you do your work on a graph paper. Yes. And I had forgotten that that was the correlation as to why that was. Yes. That is incredible. So, uh, oh my gosh, I, I wonder, I'm just trying to think, I was like, oh, I wonder if, where do I find graph paper? I guess Staples. <laughs> the show is brought Staples. to you by, I'm just kidding. It's right. right. Or, um, you know, iPad Pro has some applications on it that have fake graph paper. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some pseudo graph paper. Exactly. Carrie, thank you so much for joining. It has been such a fun, fun way to go through memory lane of just the development environment since the 80s, but specifically with the perspective of design, part of that journey. What are you working on now? How can we best support you? How can we follow up? Yeah. So number one, if you're interested at all in terms of extending Adobe products, there's a few resources that I can point you to, and we can certainly include in the show notes. We have an Adobe tech blog. I would suggest to follow that. It's on Medium. We have all sorts of interesting things there that we talk about with regard to development, but also how that intersects with design. We have a newsletter that we send out once a month that keeps you abreast of everything that we're doing from a development perspective and how you can get involved in the community. And we also have forums, creativeclouddeveloper.com, where you can get in and dig into the extensibility platform that we're building and meet other developers, converse, find solutions. And they're all an amazingly friendly group. So I'd encourage you to check that out. If you're curious at all about what options we provide, adobe.io is the perfect place to start. It documents everything. And I mean, it's a long list from APIs on the REST endpoints to JavaScript APIs to C++. You can find it all there. So definitely check that out. And we would love to hear your thoughts as you work through that. And if you come up with something cool, we always love to show that off. And so there's a few times on our tech blog, for example, where you'll see a third-party developer, not an Adobe employee, but someone external to the company going on a 
about how they built this tool, why they built it, the experiences they had while building it, and why it was a success. And so I would definitely encourage you to check that out. Carrie, 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 thank you so much for sharing that. We'll definitely be able to leave that in the show notes. And Carrie Schatz from Adobe, thank you so much for joining. Thanks. It was wonderful to talk to you. Okay, so that was super awesome. Carrie is super chill and just full of joy and sunshine. I'm feeling revived from that from that episode. If not revived, at least reflective on a nostalgia that I never, I mean, I didn't live in the 80s, but it was awesome to see that platform go through different generations of transitions and essentially also what is upcoming in the world of development and design. And and yeah, watching Adobe keep up with it, right? I would also like to say just a huge thank you for those who stuck to the end and revisiting our season. If if this is your first time here, welcome. If you're coming back, hey, absolutely excited to hang out with you again. Please, please, please. If you have just even one friend, one friend who's like, hey, this is super valuable. This is super awesome. I want to share this with someone because I know they're working with Adobe or they're a designer, but they want to understand from like maybe moving into a career as a developer. Go ahead and share this episode. I would really appreciate that. It helps this little podcast get discovered. And on my end, I just like to thank OutSystems for supporting this podcast and really, really appreciate OutSystems. And yeah, if y'all want to build something awesome, check it out. All right, y'all take care. Catch you in the next episode.